You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 14th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up today, Ukraine's leadership accuses Russia of committing war crimes in newly liberated territory. But will the perpetrators ever be brought to book? Also ahead on today's programme... She used to be Melania Trump's lawyer. Now she's the president of Slovenia. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be telling you how Natasha Pierz Musa became Slovenia's first female head of state. More from Guy later on, and then we'll be crossing the border into Austria to find out about a political scandal that's gripped the nation. It's not uh, relevant under criminal law, but it's definitely embarrassing and it also harms credibility of, of the Austrian media. We'll also have a newspaper review from Zurich and then Monocle's Fernando Gusto Pacheco will be here with his World Cup preview. All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, has accused Russian forces of committing hundreds of war crimes in Kherson. Investigators are attempting to assess the scale of the atrocities following Russia's decision to rapidly retreat from the southern city. Well, Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University, and she joins us now on the line. Good afternoon, Jenny. The the scale, the speed of that Russian retreat was pretty astonishing. Um, Before we talk more about these claims from Zelensky, just tell us about your reaction to the Russian withdrawal. I guess surprising doesn't cover it. Well, it's it's very unusual in many ways. Uh, I think, firstly, the fact that it was acknowledged publicly uh, from the highest levels. I mean, not by Putin, but but certainly from the defense minister Sergei Shoigu, uh, publicly acknowledged on television that it's being uh, being hap- you know it's, the withdrawal was happening, um, and it was trailed you know for several weeks in advance. So obviously, they were trying to prepare Russian society uh, for this this dreadful news. Um, but also, of course, I mean, the fact of the retreat. Uh, demonstrates the further difficulties that the Russian military is having, having, and the further disintegration I think that that's occurring, um, and the fact that they're just not able to retain control of this, the only major town, regional sort of capital that they managed to capture uh, after the twenty fourth of February mass invasion, and it was one of the earliest uh, areas to be taken, uh, you know, back in the in the in the winter, um, and now they have pulled back. So it is a, a very significant uh, blow to Russia's prestige and also to to Russia's aims of taking control of you know, this territory, Kherson, uh, which is one of the four of it that uh, Putin claimed to have annexed uh, for Russia and would be Russia forever. Now, obviously, we understand that the Russian troops will be kind of digging in on the other side of the Dnipro uh, River. So there's plainly, you know, greater battles ahead. But is our understanding broadly that Ukraine continues to make advances, to make gains across the uh, disputed regions? It's still a, essentially a pretty good news story for Ukrainian forces across quite an extensive geography, with the caveat, of course, that you know, there's still some uh, more to be discovered about the the state of of Kherson once the the full liberation is is complete. 
Yeah, I mean, by no means is this war over. Uh, and although the momentum is definitely with the Ukrainian forces at this time, um, you know, it, it's not going to be easy to to fully evict the Russians from the territories that they've occupied. And that's certainly Ukraine's uh, intention uh, and their goal. And so, you know, it's going to take, you know, more months, almost certainly, of hard fighting. Um, and, you know, the Russians haven't given up, although they are retreating in, in various places. Um, and certainly, you know, earlier this morning, there were air raids in, in various parts of Ukraine. Uh, and so, you know, this is what Russia has done is when it, it cannot advance on the battlefield, um, it turns to attacking civilian targets uh, with, with sort of long, long range artillery and missiles and so on. And so, you know, the, the war is not won uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And the Ukrainians are going to continue to push forward uh, as they have done. Uh, but they're they're quite strategic, very canny, very cautious about how they move forward. And when they pick their times, um, you know, they have their, their strategy, they have their plans, uh, and they follow them. And they've been very successful, you know, and demonstrating that they can effectively use the weapons and the training and the equipment uh, that the Western countries have provided them with. Um, let me ask you then about these concerning claims uh, of further evidence of Russian war crimes, atrocities. It's typical, actually, of what we've seen um, as uh, liberated towns and cities uh, have been uh, reclaimed from under Russian control by Ukrainians, that they found evidence of, of war crimes. It's obviously very uh, worrying, and it's worrying in particular that it's a trend that seems to happen all across the country. That's right. I mean, this increasingly seems to be the way that Russia is waging war in Ukraine uh, very brutally um, with attacks on civilians, uh, with, you know, the, the torture and, and abuse and murder of civilians and the abduction of civilians and particularly the abduction of children. And we're learning more and more about, you know, children being taken, um, you know, to Russia and now being uh, adopted into new families. So there's a whole host of very alarming and concerning uh, human rights abuses, uh, which have been going on, you know, since the beginning, really, of this mass invasion. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are so determined to retake all of the territory and, and not to permit uh, Russia to continue to control any of their territory or any of their population, because, you know, this is the way consistently uh, that Russia has been waging war in Ukraine. Jenny, do you think that there's the likelihood or even the possibility of meaningful tribunals to investigate these kinds of claims once the war has ended? And I use that loosely because we don't know, as you have said already, the kind of timelines we're considering. Um, we've seen other conflicts of a similar nature where it's been very difficult to attempt to organise that kind of investigation, far less successfully prosecute it. What's your instinct tell you in terms of the possibility of that happening? Well, there are already international organizations which are, you know, help, helping to collect the evidence. You know, the Ukrainians are, are busy collecting the evidence. Um, you know, the United Nations has a special um, independent inquiry, uh, which has been set in, set up into the, the war in Ukraine. So, you know, there there are a lot of people who and institutions who are, um, you know, working already and who will be continuing to work on this very issue. And yes, it takes a long time to collect the evidence. It takes a long time to to prosecute uh, people for war crimes. And it doesn't always come to a very a speedy and satisfactory conclusion in terms of you know bringing people to justice, uh, but nevertheless, this is a process which is certainly going to happen uh, in the case of Russia. Um, if we just look at the sort of respective leadership of these two uh, countries, obviously Moscow, perhaps predictably, continues to deny that its troops 
intentionally target civilians at all, far less take any responsibility for some of these uh, more concerning uh, claims. If we look on the Ukrainian side, uh, Zelensky uh, actually, of course, uh, in Kherson, which is presumably quite quite significant. Um, what do you make of what we're hearing from the, the leaderships of the two uh, nations, respectively? Well, I think Putin is uh, being true to form in the sense Putin and his and his colleagues in the in the senior leadership are being true to form in the sense that you know they're denying um, things which which there of which there is abundant evidence, um, and this isn't the first time that Russia has denied um, you know doing things which clearly it has done, um, and so this is simply part and parcel of the way that Putin deals with. Uh, the fact that you know Russia is not behaving as it should is simply to to pretend that it's not happening. I think it also reflects the fact that you know this is part of of Russian political culture is to have a, a big gap between what the officials say, what official truth tells you, which what's what's in the law, what's in the constitution, what the leadership tells you in public, and then what people experience in real life. Um, you know that that's a, a holdover from the Soviet times, and it's definitely been something that Putin has uh, has reintroduced. Um, and so it is uh, it is a practice that that Russian uh, political leaders engage in, and you know we shouldn't be. Uh, fooled by it. We shouldn't be misled by it. We need to, to look at what the evidence is telling us. Jenny, really great to hear from you. Thanks for your time today. That was Jenny Mathers joining us on The Briefing. Uh, now let's cross to Monocle 24's Carlotta Rebello here in London with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Turkish police have arrested a suspect following yesterday's bomb attack in Istanbul. Six people were killed and dozens more were injured in the explosion in a busy shopping district. Turkish officials say the Kurdistan Workers' Party was behind the attack. The UK has reached a deal with France in a bid to stop migrants from crossing the English Channel in small boats. Under the updated agreement, UK police officers will be embedded with their French counterparts in control rooms and on beaches. And the Contemporary Art Museum, the base in Miami Beach, is set to receive millions of dollars as part of a government initiative. You can find out much more about the plans to support culture in the city by heading to monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. Now, Slovenia has elected its first ever female head of state. The 54-year-old lawyer, Natasha Pierce-Muzar, ran as an independent with the backing of Slovenia's centre-left government. Let's explore the potential significance of this with Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delorny. Guy joins us from the Slovenian capital, Ljubljana. Um, good afternoon to you, Guy. Um, I saw you in London mere days ago. Now you're back in your newly in your adopted home. Um, and And tell us what it means uh, for the nation. It's a, a big day. Well, it's a move into new territory, isn't it, Tom? I mean, we've been an independent country here in Slovenia for 31 years, and we have not had a female president before. Um, Slovenia, I think it's worth pointing out, has had a female prime minister once. That was Alenka Bratusek, and she served fairly briefly between 2013 and 2014. Uh, but worth noting that she was never elected, a bit in the sort of British prime ministerial style that we're used to seeing these days. She was uh, uh, appointed under a sort of like internal bit of jiggery-pokery and then was promptly emptied out by the electorate. So this is for the first time uh, that a woman has been elected to the office, not just a president, but, you know, uh, any sort of senior office uh, in Slovenia. And uh, I wouldn't say that people were out on the streets celebrating, but you've got to say it's a certain mark of a nation when it has its first female head of state. 
Exactly, a, a day to mark. And whilst the presidency is a largely ceremonial uh, guy, isn't it? It can set the tone. It can send a message to uh, other countries and it speaks to soft power and, and so forth. And that's why it's still um, very relevant. And I think tone setting is incredibly relevant in Slovenia at the moment because we've had a few years of quite, uh, well, where the tone has been not exactly convivial in in Slovenian politics, where we've had this idea that you're either for or against the party of Janusz Janša, the former prime minister, and his SDS party. Um, You know, he was very viciously against everybody else and everybody else was very viciously against him. And it was all rather unpleasant. And I think the thing we've seen with Natasha Pertz-Musar so far far is that despite the fact that she was running against the former foreign minister Ange Logar, who was backed by Janusz Janša, she didn't resort to any sort of name calling. She ran as an independent herself and she tried to run the campaign, she said, and she did in a way which was thoroughly civil. And she said that in the end, after five months of campaigning, she grew to see Ange Logar as her friend rather than her opponent. So this, this shift in tone, some people, some of the optimists among the Slovenian Twitter artists, uh, are hoping that this uh, may signal a shift in the tone of Slovenian politics, at least for a while. Uh, that can be the hope. Um, it's instructive. She said she will do her best to be a true president for all, which speaks mm. to an intention about inclusivity and so forth. But tell us a bit more about her. I mentioned she's a lawyer. She's in her mid-50s. Does she have the kind of um, personality, the wherewithal to make a good fist of this job? Well, she's got a, a profile, uh, and she has been had a national profile as a television presenter. So she presented one of the main television news bulletins in Slovenia for about half a dozen years, and also worked on one of the uh, the commercial channels as well. And then she spent a decade as information commissioner of Slovenia, and very, very briefly as the sort of big boss of RTV Slovenia, the main public service broadcaster. So she's not an unknown quantity, though she was, as I, I hasten to add, running as an independent. That backing that you spoke of in your introduction from the, the governing party came only after their own candidate had been given the heave-ho in the first round of the election and she'd been very keen to say that you know she's not anybody's president she's everybody's president so she does have that sort of stature but i think the one thing which is going to titillate the likes of us tom is that she was uh, the lawyer for none other than melania trump uh, so after Melania Trump became the first lady of the United States, uh, she appointed Natasha Pertz-Musar to represent her interests in Slovenia and around the region, uh, which largely meant that uh, Natasha Pertz-Musar was going around uh, issuing cease and desist notices on people trying to use Melania Trump's name to market things. Um, one imagines if you can uh, deal with Melania, you're probably fairly well set to deal with any number of uh, problems well, that so, may, may yes. come your way. Tell me, Guy, talking about high-profile media figures, you are one such. Does the old Delaunay yeah. red phone ring straight away? Uh, new president, presumably desperate to come and have a chat with you. I wonder. I did interview the, the incumbent, Borut Pohor. Uh, for Monocle magazine, and so he was a delightful fellow who was very, very, very media-friendly, uh, to the extent that he was known as the Instagram president due to his mastery of social media. And it worked for him, Tom, because over his two terms, which have lasted 10 years, he was pretty much consistently ranked as the most popular politician in Slovenia. And uh, and despite this being a teeny-weeny country, I think he did 
do quite a good soft power job um, in raising Slovenia's profile wherever he went by, you know, going jogging in the streets of all these uh, major events that he was invited to as a head of state. Um, and Natasha Piazmusa has got a, <laughs> a difficult act to follow in that regard. She says she won't be competing on Instagram, that's for sure. <laughs> well, we'll watch with interest. Um, Guy, always good to hear from you. Uh, that was our Guy Deloni reporting from Ljubljana. You're with the briefing here on Monocle 24. And we head not too far uh, to Austria now, where two high-ranking journalists have been forced to resign after anti-corruption prosecutors revealed that they'd exchanged friendly messages with some dubious political figures. It's become known as the chat affair. Monocle's Alexei Korilov in Vienna reports. In Austria, the relationship between politics and the media is a tricky one. So there's actually a term in, in German... Uh, called Verhaberung, uh, which sort of loosely translates as collusion. That's Volker Hanusch, professor of journalism at the University of Vienna. More from him later. For decades, nobody cared about the Verhaberung. But in 2019, something momentous happened. Austria's parliament and its reputation is in free fall. In the space of five days, a plot to sell state contracts in return for favourable media coverage was exposed. The vice-chancellor resigned, the ruling coalition crumbled and the government was dissolved. You can call it customs and traditions, more or less, in, in Austria. Austria is a small country. It's not only media, it's uh, everyone knows everyone, <laughs> more or less. So politicians, uh, journalists and so on, they know each other. There is the, the more or less, uh, I would say, the unwritten constitution of the country. As some of Austria's leading politicians crashed and burned, it was only a matter of time before the unwritten constitution tripped up the journalists too. And last week, it claimed its latest victims. Rainer Novak, editor-in-chief of the respected daily Die Presse, and Matthias Schromm, a senior editor at the public broadcaster ORF. Novak was revealed to have discussed a promotion to ORF with an unscrupulous Conservative Party loyalist, while Schromm chatted amicably with a far-right leader. I'm Gerald Grunberger. I'm the managing director of the Austrian Newspaper Association and... Uh I would call it crossing the red line, more or less. Yeah. The, the cases uh, you mentioned, it's not uh, relevant under criminal law, but it's definitely embarrassing and it also harms credibility of, of the Austrian media. We can see in Austrian journalism that political allegiances have at times played a role in um, journalists moving up the ranks. Professor Volker Hanusch. The entire appointment process at the public broadcaster, uh, there are, you know, political influences there. Uh, so I think this happens in journalism in almost every country. Invariably, political journalists are very close to power and they need to build up relationships with the politicians. Um, but in, uh, in Austria, I guess that distance has uh, often been much shorter than in other countries. More cases of collusion are expected to come to light as investigations continue. But what does this mean for Austrian journalism? 
Professor Volker Hanusch again. I think we need to be careful that we don't sort of now accuse everyone in, in Austrian journalism of being too close uh, to politics. I think there is a, a large number and, and probably the vast majority of journalists who do try to do the right thing. Um, studies have shown in the past that journalists are aware, particularly political journalists, domestic political journalists, are quite aware of this problem. And uh, that's a first step, you know, to recognise that you have a problem. Um, how do you go about the, uh, you know, solving this issue, I think, is a cultural um, problem that I don't think will necessarily go away that quickly. It's to do with uh, media monopolies, uh, or at least very few owners who might have a lot of, wield a lot of influence. Couple that with you know, the, the general problem of you need to somehow be able to talk to your sources and at the same time keeping a, keeping a safe distance from them. Gerald Grunberger, the Austrian Newspaper Association, puts it more bluntly. How are we? Are we like that or, or not? So that's the interesting uh, uh, thing about the whole discussion because you will find that, okay, at the moment the discussion is about how journalists were dealing with the, the coalition between uh, the Austrian People's Party and the FPÖ, uh, but you will find it on the left-wing side as well, of course. So that's more or less a, a discussion we will have to face uh, is uh, how is our society organized? For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Thank you very much indeed, Alexei. You're with the briefing here on Monocle 24. Time for a look at the day's newspapers with the broadcaster and journalist Juliet Lindley, who joins us live from our headquarters in Zurich. Good afternoon to you, Juliet. How is Zurich this afternoon? Sunny? Uh, autumnal? No, bit wintry? Bit, yeah, a bit wintry, a bit grey, a bit foggy, but all's good. We're in a good mood here in the studio. Wonderful stuff. Well, I tell you where tensions are definitely uh, pretty high, and that's between uh, Italy and France. Uh, if we cast our eyes a little further south uh, from where you are, a big row brewing over migration. Tell us more about this one. Yes, Tom. So in a bid to ease that worrying uh, tension between Paris and Rome, President Sergio Mattarella of Italy picked up the phone today and talked directly to French President Emmanuel Macron. So they put out a joint statement agreeing on the importance of bilateral relations and the need to fully cooperate within the EU. But it didn't reference directly the migrant crisis. Now, you remember that last Friday, Paris allowed a ship carrying 230 asylum seekers to dock in the French port of Toulon after Rome had ignored the pleas of the ocean Viking to dock for weeks. Now, in reaction to Italy's refusal, French Interior Minister Gérard Damagnin said Paris would be suspending its plans to take in 3,500 refugees currently in Italy and called on other EU countries to do the same. So Italian Premier Giorgia Meloni called the move aggressive, incomprehensible and unjustifiable, escalating the route to the highest levels, with Paris retorting that Meloni is the one in the losing position. So, Tom, today's phone call is certainly trying to tamp down the tensions a little but the joint statement is very carefully worded to avoid explicit references and it doesn't provide any guidelines to move forward so let's see what comes today out of a council on foreign affairs in brussels meeting but berlin is meanwhile positioning itself on the side of needing to provide humanitarian help but uh anti-immigrant deputy prime minister matteo salvini of italy is standing firm saying his government is ready to play hardball regarding illegal migrations italian foreign minister Tai 
Tajani is quoted in Repubblica saying, well, we're ready to talk to the French and to close this polemic, which we actually didn't even start in the first place. So slightly softer position there. But all in all, Tom, clearly contrasting positions, even within the Italian government, let alone within the EU on this constantly difficult issue. And for now, there are no plans for Meloni and Macron, by the way, to meet at the G20 in Bali. Uh, yes, that would be one. It would be intriguing to be a fly on the wall at that one, if, it, <laughs> if and when it does indeed happen. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the crypto magnate who's fallen from, from grace. Uh, this is a really interesting one, uh, Juliet, isn't it? And I think, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with this, but uh, bring us up to speed. So, yeah, Tom, so the current crypto crash is very much in the headlines over the last days, still today. And some are seeing it as payback time for the Bitcoin bandits and others Others are simply saying, well, this isn't the end of crypto, but we just need to finally regulate it efficiently at the highest levels and build in protection mechanisms. But I was intrigued by this profile I found on the BBC of fallen crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried, whose bankrupt company FTX is being investigated for how he handled its finances. And in the many of the long interviews that you can find online that he gave over the years, speaking over video chat from his office in the Caribbean, you can constantly hear a distracting clicking sound coming from this multi or former multi-billionaire's mouse. And at the same time, you notice that Bankman-Fried's eyes are darting all over the screen while he talks. So, Tom, apparently it's because he's an avid gamer and he's playing League of Legends constantly and in a series of tweets he explains that the fantasy battle game was his way to switch off from running two companies that were trading billions of dollars a day. He said, some people drink too much, some gamble, I play league. Well, Tom, I'm not quite sure how advantageous uh, the fallen crypto king's hobby was in the end, given the unfortunate state of affairs at the moment of the crypto markets, but I'm just wondering, do all of our listeners actually know what League of Legends is? Because I don't, I don't know if you do, but it's hugely popular. Apparently it has 180 million registers players. Tom, do you know much about it? Should I give you a little insight? I would love to hear some insights because I must admit my current knowledge is, how should we say, fairly shallow? Right. That's what I thought. So I just, just a little nugget. So it was created 13 years ago and it's a battle arena video game with sort of 140 different characters, cartoonish looking ones. The most popular one is called Jinx. Good to know that. And it was one of the first to introduce a free to play model. So it has no price tag, which is rather nice to know, but the company makes money through its aesthetic cosmetic features. They don't give you an advantage when you're playing, Tom, but you can choose different looks and things. And it's highly competitive. You come back you, you do battle in a team of five. You test skill and strategy. Apparently, it's fun to watch as well as to play. And another reason for its popularity is its focus on specific geographical regions, with players saying that this creates a feeling of community. Just a caveat, Tom, as I researched League of, Le- of Legends, also known as LOL, I have to say that a lot of rehab ads popped up because the game <laughs> is apparently highly addictive. So maybe uh, take a step back, Tom. Don't register right away. Okay, and I, maybe I won't play the game whilst I'm chatting to you, Juliet. Yeah, both out of <laughs> click, courtesy click, click. and simple pragmatism. Uh, nor will I indulge any of those other... What were the hobbies? Drinking? And well, let's not let's not go there. I'll try. I'll try and keep my, tear myself away from those for just for the thirty minutes of the of the program. Um, now let's talk about some young people who I'm quite sure don't dabble in any of those uh, misbehaviors. <laughs> Online gaming. Uh, the, the, the the leading youth of tomorrow in Switzerland. The young parliamentarians. What have they been up to, Julia? Indeed. No, no LOLing. I'm sure. No LOLing. I'm sure these two hundred youngsters. Well, they've just wrapped up their 
four-day annual youth session at the Bern Federal Parliament of the Swiss National Youth Council. And top of their minds are um, easing the situation for foreigners in Switzerland and organ donations. So they're aged around 17 and these teenagers are keen on a more uniform and objective neutralization process in Switzerland, avoiding what they view as arbitrary decisions in obtaining Swiss passports for foreigners, as well as greater integration into the job market for asylum seekers. So Tom, bear in mind that in Switzerland, you can have a Swiss passport either by descent, marriage, or living in the country for a certain length of time. But um, it can be a rather long and complex process. And unlike, let's say, the United States or Australia, immigrant countries. So in Switzerland, kids who are born here don't automatically uh, gain citizenship through youth uh, solely. Uh, so the youth parliamentarians are also clamoring for better information for the general public on the implications of donating organs in Switzerland. Isn't that interesting that that's at the top of their minds? Now, their demands will be considered by the country's legislators in the coming months. And this was created uh, more than 30 years ago in 1991, the Swiss Youth Council. And it's been meeting every year for its session in the Swiss capital. And the idea is to increase the participation of young people in political decision making. Now, experts from various walks of life and organizations help them, help them craft their proposals, as well as the actual members of parliament itself. Uh, fascinating. Well, uh, we shall watch out for them. Presumably they'll be in frontline politics in just a few short years' time, won't they, Juliet? Probably taking all of our jobs next as well. Uh, uh, Juliet, fab to speak with you as always. Thanks for sparing us some time uh, this Monday afternoon. That was our Juliet Lindley from Zurich. Uh, now, back to London. Uh, another young leader has joined me in the studio. That was him chuckling. It's our Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Good afternoon, Faye. I chuckle every time I'm called young. Thank you, Tom. Well, I do my best. You can reciprocate at your leisure. <laughs> of course. Um, listen, we are talking about the FIFA World Cup. It kicks off in Qatar this Sunday. It's kind of crept up on everyone to a degree, simply because it's happening in the middle of the European football season. Um, but you've been taking a closer look, I guess, at the likely reception it's going to get in all the different markets around the world. And I think this is very interesting, Tom, because here in the UK, it's been an extremely critical coverage and, and perhaps with reason as well. Uh, but it's interesting. I spent the month of September in Brazil. And of course, there are mention of the human rights situation of the workers in Qatar, you know, about gay rights as well, but not to a degree that we see here in the UK and perhaps in the rest of Europe. So it's interesting that, you know, it's one event, but the whole world is looking at it in different ways. And perhaps in Latin America, I have to say, especially in Argentina, I mean, I, you know, I think Brazil is a football-obsessed country, but I kind of have a feeling that perhaps this is going to be controversial, that Argentina, perhaps they might be even a bit more uh, in a way. Uh, it's a country that is in the middle of an economic crisis, but there's still a lot of Argentinians actually going to Qatar. I don't know the full numbers there, but there's clearly a huge interest. And again, I have to remind, it's a country that is in the middle of an economic crisis. And of course, it might be the last World Cup of Messi. Uh, and, and there's a huge pressure uh, for Argentina to gain the trophy. If you go to La Nación website, there's a ticker on the top of, of, the, of the page uh, saying how, you know, it's, it's been six days and how many hours for the World Cup to begin. So it, it's a really kind of exciting coverage uh, in a way compared to, to, to here, uh, if I may be honest. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Argentina is certainly excited about Messi and is it fair to say just briefly on Brazil mm. there seems to be more of a genuine uh, almost tangible sense of excitement about the actual football um, and I wonder is this partly we've talked before about post-Bolsonaro you know 
Lula back, reclaiming the shirt, um, being able to get behind the Selassau in a way that doesn't speak to politics and brings it just back to the sport? Absolutely. There's a huge uh, project. There's even ads on TV saying that everyone should wear the Brazilian kit. As you know, it's been tainted in recent years. It's been very closely associated with Jair Bolsonaro. But there is a campaign. Even the coach, uh, you know, uh, Chichi, he said, you know, if we win, we're not going to Brasilia as, as they do traditionally. So that's a way to say, you know, we're not going to be a politicized uh, country. We're literally for everyone, no matter if you're a Bolsonaro or a Lula supporter. I think that's been the main story uh, of Brazil. You can wear the shirt of pride. And you will be wearing your Richarlison shirt. Tottenham's Ab- Richarlison. Absolutely. Fernando. As you know, I'm a big fan of Richarlison. <laughs> Number uh, nine. <laughs> uh, the, the big man up front. Right. Let's talk a bit about Europe then. Because um, I, I know you, you mentioned the UK coverage, which we've covered quite a lot. Mm. But looking uh, just across the narrow body of water that separates us from our friends friends you have the uh, the uh, le monde magazine which is interesting this is it i think and this sums up this slightly difficult position that a lot of these countries find themselves in. I think uh, Emle Magazine du Monde had a fantastic cover story in their latest issue. Le Qatar, un ami embarrassant, like a, an embarrassing friend. Uh, the, basically, the story talk about 50 years of money and influence and how Qatari authorities, they have very close relationship with French presidents. And there's even a spread here with pictures of the Qatari authorities with Hollande, Sarkozy, with Macron, with Jacques Chirac. So it doesn't matter if they're from the left or from the right. And I think that's what Europe also has to to think. I mean, as I said, the coverage is much more critical here and with good reason. But those countries, they are very much closely associated with Qatar, uh, being with business dealings and other things. So it's it's an interesting way. And that's, you know, I was even talking to Andrew Muller on, on Friday's Monaco Daily. We had a whole discussion about this, that it's not very easy to boycott an event in a country that actually you do business with. Mm -hmm. So it it is a very complex story and I think the European press is definitely trying to grapple uh, this whole situation. Well, and it's there's some schizophrenic elements to the European press coverage. It's quite striking in this country, The Guardian, uh, obviously left-leaning newspaper, very outspoken in its criticism of Qatar and of the World Cup happening there. But if you go back to when the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, which is, I think, sometimes almost 10 years ago, something like that, there were voices in The Guardian, there were op-eds strongly in favour of the message of inclusivity about the global game that it would confer by awarding it to Qatar. So... These leopards change their their spots quite quite frequently. Absolutely. Just briefly, before we leave, what about in Qatar and out of Doha? The message there, presumably, tremendously excited. I know we have we you have Al Jazeera sometimes playing yeah. next to you. You're not getting the nuances of the criticism of the coverage if you only consume Qatari media. Everyone's excited. I mean, if you're reading the Gulf Times today, the main story is that the trophy, the World Cup trophy, arrived uh, in Qatar because, you know, it it was uh, on a tour uh, around the world. So it's a very positive coverage, even though there was a note uh, there in one of the the news, apparently you can't smoke uh, in in the status. But to be honest, I I was not very surprised. I thought, you know, even here, I don't think you can smoke in the status. You certainly cannot. But it's interesting that, you know, perhaps that was the more critical coverage they had. And as I said, Al Jazeera, I sit close to... a big TV screen with Al Jazeera on, they are covering Qatar like 24-7, the World Cup. And if you go to the BBC, to Sky News, not yet. Uh, you know, so there is definitely a difference uh, in coverage there as well. Faye, in two words, who wins the soft power World Cup campaign? And secondly, 
Who wins the actual World Cup campaign? Two countries, two names. Maybe it's the same. Qatar is not going to win the soft power. I think it's going to be hard for Dan as well. You know, Denmark got a few. Uh, you know, they, they are doing well. You know, even, even the, they're kind of the uniform. So they're not boycotting the event, but they're trying to make their point, their political view. So perhaps they could gain a little bit soft so Denmark, power. So Denmark's a soft power winner. I, I mean, mean, come on, who's winning the big one? It's going to be Brazil. I mean, there's no doubt of that. You can even record what I'm saying here. Okay, it's on the record. So our, yes. for our Brazilian <laughs> listeners, blame Fernando if exactly. it doesn't happen. What if Argentina win, Faye? Oh God. I mean, oh God. You might have to leave. I can't say you anything. You might have to hide out for a few months. Uh, Faye, uh, look forward to enjoying some of the games with you uh, here at Midori House. Uh, that was our Fernando Augusto Pacheco. That is all, though, for this Monday edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Rhys James, researched by Emily Sands, and our studio manager was Sarah Nicholl. My thanks to them, one and all. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's noon in London, of course. And Andrew Muller mentioned earlier, he will be here at 1800 for today's Monocle Daily. That's your Monday Briefing. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.